John chapter 6, beginning in verse 47. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? This is Jesus speaking, and he says this. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Did you know that people from all over the world and all over the country come here to our area, to Washington, D.C., all the time. There's hundreds of thousands, millions of people each year coming to our area to, to see the things that we see every day or, or certainly on a regular basis. There are schools from other parts of the country that have fundraisers so that their students can come and see the sites and look at the memorials and, and visit the museums and things that we just, we hop in the car an hour or so up the road, we can see these things anytime we want. Perhaps that kind of experience becomes routine to you. Maybe, maybe I had a, a little bit of a, a reverse experience a few years ago. Um, we were on our way back home from Moldova uh, on one of our trips, and so the group had an opportunity to stop for a night. We always stop for a night on our way back, and uh, we stopped in Istanbul, Turkey, and I, that's where I was like walking around and my jaw never got off the pavement. I was just in awe of everything around me. I mean, we got to see, we got to walk through the Hagia Sophia, a very old church that's unfortunately, sadly, been used as a mosque in the last few centuries. Um, then, uh, you know, the Blue Mosque, we got to see columns that were a thousand years old, brought from the city of Corinth. Uh, we got to see Roman aqueducts that were I don't know, really old. <laughs> but we walked around there, right, Karen? We walked around there. We were like, in fact, we got in late. It was a late night flight. We dropped our stuff in the hotel. And then there we were, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, walking around the old part of Istanbul, walking, seeing as much as we could see. Then we went to the hotel. We took a nap, basically. Then we were up at dawn with the morning prayers ringing in our ears. Uh, so that we could pack all of that in and see as much as possible before we had to take our returning flight. But while we were kind of in the midst of all that, 
We, we, uh, a friend of mine and I on the team, we walked up to the, the coffee place to get a little cup of Turkish coffee, right? You got, if you're in Turkey, you got to get a little cup of Turkish coffee. And um, basically, it's like thick as mud. And so we, we sampled it. We, we got to see it. And we got to taste it. Uh, but, you know, the guy, he wasn't acting like, I'm in the midst of tremendous culture and history. He was just like, yeah, here's your cup of coffee. This is what can happen to us on a morning like this, around a table like this, if we're not careful. And so this morning, I want to encourage us to remember, to remember what it is we're doing here this morning, why we have gathered here. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful gift to the body of Christ. One of the many blessings of this ordinance is how it grounds us by reminding us of our greatest need. It's a simple but profound truth that sin is humanity's greatest problem, which creates our greatest need. As individuals or as a collective whole, nothing we face compares to sin. Often sin is the ultimate origin of the hardships and pain we endure, from backaches to broken marriages, from deceased pets to disasters of all kinds, from Wednesdays to war. Sin is the root cause, our sin. So what is that? What is sin? And when I ask most children that question, they usually focus on the visible evidence of sin, the bad things that people do to disobey God. And they're not wrong, not wrong at all. But to fully answer that question, we have to go back to where it all began in Genesis chapter 3. So let's start with verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all, wild, all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See, we look at this passage and we begin to see that sin is three-dimensional. Of course, you look at the second part of verse 6 and you see it right there. You see the disobedience, right? They ate the apple or whatever fruit it was. My personal theory is that it was dragon fruit. You'll get that later, some of you. Dragon fruit is real, by the way, in case you're, you're like, hey, he's making that up. Without question, sin involves actions and other observable behaviors. We know that. But don't overlook the underlying factors in verses 1 through 6 here. They're the roots of the tree. They're the, the larger portion of the iceberg that's just below the surface of the water. In the first five verses here, they reveal the first element of sin, distrust. 
Satan gets the ball rolling with a question meant to sow doubt in Eve's mind. Satan misquotes God in such a way that it paints him as an overbearing, oppressive killjoy. Did God really say? No, Satan, actually, he didn't say. They, he didn't say that they couldn't eat from any tree. If they couldn't eat from any tree, they couldn't eat. But unfortunately, Satan is not alone in misquoting God's word. Eve does the same thing when in verse 3, she commits the first recorded instance of a human being adding to God's word. Do you see it? She gets the command correct until she adds that humans must not touch the tree. That's not in the original command. It appears that Eve is starting to question God's word herself. Satan seizes the opportunity and makes two accusations towards God. First, he's a liar. He says, you won't die. He told you you'll die, but you won't die. And second, he's keeping something good from Adam and Eve. He's shutting them out. When Satan says, no, no, he knows you're going to become like him if you eat that fruit. So distrust is a core part of sin. But that second accusation leads us to the other underlying factor of sin, which is to displace him. The Bible records the name of the tree bearing the forbidden fruit as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is knowledge in the sense that it is self-determined. This is how we go from truth with a capital T to a culture that invites everyone to tell their truth. Eating that forbidden fruit was easy once Adam and Eve no longer believed God's word or submitted themselves to his authority. Both had been undermined in their eyes. Do you see why sin is our greatest problem creating our greatest need? It's devastating to the core of each human being. And mere behavior modification will never be enough. We need a savior. We need someone from outside ourselves. And we need Jesus. But just to clear the air, what God actually said to Adam when he entrusted his word to him before Eve was even created is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. There we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And they certainly did die. First and immediately, they died spiritually. They were cut off from the very source of their life. Second, and eventually, they died physically. For all these reasons and more, overcoming sin is humanity's greatest need. For this need, God has only one solution. Unfortunately, humanity, from the moment we fell, have repeatedly attempted to provide our own solutions, and they have always failed. Before we leave Genesis 3, let's take a look at verse 7. There we read, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, from childhood, we focus on how they knew that they were naked. We kind of chuckle and giggle. But that, of course, has deeper meaning than we think. But it's what Adam and Eve choose to do next, what they choose to do about this problem, that sets the pattern for humanity until eternity, until the end of history. Human beings are going to be doing this. 
they made coverings for themselves. And those coverings were what? They were fig leaves. And the significance of that, no blood was shed to provide them. Can I just tell you that I hadn't really seen that before, or at least I had forgotten it, um, until recently when it came up in a Good News Club lesson at Leonardtown Elementary School. And I hadn't really seen, or perhaps I had forgotten, that Eve had added to God's word until verse 3 came up in my life group uh, a few weeks ago. So lesson is, if you want to grow spiritually, serve the Lord. Teaching is a great way to learn. And get into close fellowship with brothers and sisters who can sharpen your faith as iron sharpens iron. Okay, commercial over. Access, or excuse me, across history and across this whole planet, all human religions, all human philosophies have just consisted of many futile attempts to do what Adam and Eve first tried to do with those fig leaves. We keep trying to either reach heaven by our own power and strength, or we bury our heads in the sand and we tell ourselves, there is no God, everything's fine, there is no God, everything's fine. In contrast to Adam and Eve's failed attempt, God revealed his only solution in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. This is God, the Father, speaking with, the, with Sir, Satan. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God's solution was to send someone from the outside, a Messiah who would rescue us from our sins because we had no ability to save ourselves. He would have to die. His blood would be shed because it was necessary. Look at what God did next to drive this point home. Just a few verses later, verse 21 The Lord God made clothing from what? From skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. He made them clothing from skins, meaning blood had been shed. God provided the covering for their nakedness at the cost of the life blood of another. Our monthly celebration of the Lord's Supper forces us to face the depth and reality of our sin every single time. This ordinance is a memorial that reminds us of why a sacrifice was needed in the first place. When we gather at this table, we find that God's only solution is provided in two parts. The first is Jesus' body. Overcoming our sin problem was always going to cost someone their life, but it had to be a human being who had no sin of their own. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17, shed some light on this. It says, Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. The first element we consume in the Lord's Supper is bread that represents the broken body of Christ. Now, when we partake of it this morning, you will have a few moments while that bread is distributed. And I want to encourage you to take that time to contemplate the fact that Jesus' body 
was brutally beaten and disfigured as a way of absorbing God's righteous wrath against your sin and my sin and the sin of the world. When Jesus submitted his human body to crucifixion and the violence and humiliation that preceded it, he was taking the punishment that you and I deserve for our distrust and displacement and disobedience of the holy God who gave us life. With this sacrifice, God's wrath against us was satisfied. It was completely spent. But Jesus didn't just suffer physically. He was obedient to the death. Death, through the shedding of blood, is the only way to pay for sins against the one true God. All sin is ultimately committed against him. And as he is supreme in every way, so is sin against him of the highest offense. Hebrews chapter 9 does a better job of explaining this than I do. In Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 14, we read, But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes, the ashes of a young cow sprinkled those who are defiled, sanctify the pur- for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from the dead works so that we can serve the living God? In verse 22, they drive this point home. According to the law, Almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The broken body of Jesus satisfied God's wrath against our sin, but it is, shed, it is the shed blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, we find this glorious promise. Though your sins are like scarlet, and they, they shall be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, They shall become like wool. This is so important. We needed both the body and the blood. Death came into the world through sin. And until Jesus' bodily resurrection, death was the final word on sin. But now, because of his broken body, that penalty no longer holds. I want to invite you to read this particular passage with me if you would this is first corinthians chapter 15 verses 55 through 57 let's read this together death where is your victory death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ likewise the shed blood of christ having purified us from sin, is transfused in a manner of speaking to give us in a great exchange of his perfect righteousness for the poison pumping through our veins. This has the effect of going beyond cleansing us of sin to giving us new life in Christ. By his blood, we come alive, reversing the curse of death on sin, and we become able not to sin on our way to glory, to glorification, where we will never sin again. This is revolutionary, and this is why we gather at this table this morning. 
But God is so good to us that even after meeting our greatest need through the death of his son, he pours out additional blessings by calling us to remember that death through this Lord's Supper. Jesus clearly established the Lord's Supper as a memorial. We're meant to gather to reflect the high, on the high cost of our forgiveness and freedom. We need reminders. Human beings have such short attention spans and limited memories. We quickly forget all God's goodness. Moses warned God's people against this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11 through 14. Here are his words. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I am giving you today. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in, your, and your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Now, who needed to hear that this morning? Besides me. God knows we need reminders. He gave Israel the Passover to help them guard against this tendency under the old covenant. And now Jesus gave his church this supper under the new covenant for the same purpose. Now, I want you to notice something that Bobby Jameson pointed out about the Passover in his booklet, Understanding the Lord's Supper. It's very helpful uh, in putting together this message. I would certainly recommend it. Again, that's Understanding the Lord's Supper Uh, Bobby Jameson, but he points out that a Jewish father leading the Passover for his family is supposed to make this statement as found in Exodus chapter 13, verse 8. This is something that is actually still said even to this day. On that day, explain to your son, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Did you notice the present tense there? This explanation is meant to be given every year. This is also how the Lord's Supper is supposed to work for us. An event from 2,000 years ago continues to have an ongoing impact in our present lives. This morning's supper should remind you of Christ's sacrifice and renew your application of it to your own life each time we gather for it. Now, I hope the next time you're in Washington that you take a moment to look around and appreciate what so many others travel so far to see. I also hope that this message helps us not to take this table for granted. It is another, but another blessing that God gives us through this ordinance is the renewal of the confession of sin and faith in Christ. Each month as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we hold a fresh memorial of the death of Christ. And each occasion gives us an opportunity in the present to say, I still need this. I'm still at war with my sin nature, the old man. I still need a savior. I haven't outgrown my need for the body and blood of Christ. I haven't risen above the need for redemption. It's an opportunity to say, thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace poured out through the life of your son. Christ provided our redemption only once, and we need only receive it once. By the way, that's why we don't have Jesus hanging on the cross behind me. 
But its application goes on and on every day of our earthly lives. This is part of the reason why the Lord's Supper is often called communion. Each time we gather around this table, we are drawn back to a time and place where we are called to set aside time to confess sin and reaffirm our faith in Christ. The union that we have with Christ begins with his death and it extends to the last blessing I'd like us to consider, the recognition of the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper also reaffirms our union with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's true that as human beings, we have many tendencies toward taking this for granted or deceiving ourselves into believing we've arrived spiritually, leading us to believe we don't need each other. As Paul reminds us, this often leads us to mistreat and disregard our brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would. This is often the passage part of the Bible we go to, but this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to be able to see this. This is, we're going to read verses 17 through 22 here. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. Paul writes, Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there are factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. See, communion serves to remind us of something that the church in Corinth had forgotten. They had divided themselves in many different ways. And so when they gathered for this meal, they were not united. But we can so easily forget we're on the same team. Rich and poor, Republican and Democrat, black and white, young and old, male and female. It makes an intangible, invisible concept, the body of Christ, visible. When we gather and we share this meal together in person, it makes the church visible. We see that we are all in this together. Now, I understand there are cowboy fans among us. (laughs) We even have a few in church leadership. I don't know how that happened. We have some of us that rock the red for the caps. But what we get to do here at this table is we get to set all of that aside and find that we have more in common in Christ than we could, that then could ever divide us. That's one reason why uh, as we share the bread and cup, we reaffirm that we're in this together. And so that is why we practice close communion. Uh, if you're not sure what that means, I'll give a brief explanation in a moment. But I want to remind you, we do have a booklet that answers the question, what are the ordinances of the church and who may participate in them? Elders put that together a few years ago. Very helpful. Uh, I would certainly recommend that if you have other questions in this area. But that's one reason why, as, as close communion, um, the practice is, is uh, basically what that means is that uh, this, this table uh, 
is open to baptized those who are baptized as believers and not barred from the table by church discipline. And, and it just is this occasion where we find our identity and unity in this table. If only the Christians in Corinth would have heeded the reminder that Paul gave them just a few verses earlier in chapter 10, in verses 16 through 17, where he wrote, the cup of blessing that we bless is not, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Now, as I stand before you today, this is a healthy, though imperfect, unified, though not uniform, family of believers in Christ. We could so easily lose that unity if we don't protect it with diligence, relying on our Savior for the strength and grace to do so. The Lord's Supper calls us to recognize the broken body of Christ and the unified ecclesiastical body of Christ. By our love for one another, the watching world will know that Jesus is the Christ and his is the only gospel that saves. Which brings us to this table. This church family seeks to live out our unity in Christ faithfully. And we have a covenant that describes the commitment every member makes to all of the others. And I would like to call us to read its abbreviated form together in honor of the one who died to bring us together in his name. This comes from Article 3 of our church constitution, by the way. So if you would, I would like to invite us to read this together. We commit ourselves to God and to another to be Christ-like in our lives and relationships through the guidance of God's Holy Spirit so that we will seek the Lord in worship by drawing near to God, being baptized by immersion after our conversion, and participating in the Lord's Supper and anticipating Christ's return. We will study God's word by growing in the knowledge of Christ, submitting to his word, and discipling one another. We will serve the body of Christ by faithfully carrying out the responsibilities of membership, stewarding our God-given resources, and loving one another, being accountable to one another, and nurturing one another. We will share Christ with the world spreading the gospel locally, regionally, and globally, and praying for the lost. In these commitments, we submit to the lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and to the leadership of elders and deacons. Finally, if we move from this place, we will seek to unite with another church as soon as possible. Thank you. This kind of love and unity are only possible among those who have been forgiven because of the broken body of Christ and cleansed by the shed blood of Christ. All those who gather around this table are one in Christ as we are one with God himself. Living out the life-changing implications of the cross is the mission of every Christian and every church. 
The world around us needs to see what it looks like when people truly love one another because God first loved them.